You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JCastNetwork.org. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. So the title of this class is Almighty No Way, Learning to Love the God You Actually Believe In. So a few comments about this uh, first. Um, the, both the title and the philosophy that underlies the title and the class um, are not original to me. Um, they're in some ways stolen, but I'll say borrowed because I think he would give me permission uh, from my teacher, Rabbi Brad Artson, um, who uh, has become uh, one of the leading voices in the Jewish uh, world um, advocating an approach to Jewish philosophy that's influenced by process thought. Uh, Process is a branch of philosophy that was uh, um, started in the early 20th century by Alfred North Whitehead, who was a uh, British mathematician uh, turned philosopher who spent uh, most of his uh, career, at least the philosophical part of his career, um, at Harvard University in Cambridge. and so his uh, his philosophy um, is called process in part because it uh, uh, is based on the premise that all of reality is uh, in an ongoing process of becoming. There's no such thing as a static reality. We're all sort of constantly in motion. Uh, and so his uh, first his book, kind of outlining this, is called Process and Reality. Uh, and uh, since that time, um, uh, his uh, philosophy has been adapted uh, in the realm of theology, which means thinking about God, um, really notably in the Christian world, by thinkers uh, like John Cobb and Charles Hartshorn, uh, and uh, um, really beautifully, if uh, you want to check out a, a really great author um, who, who writes kind of like Heschel in like, um, if you ever read Heschel, you know that Heschel writes prose that sounds like poetry. So Catherine Keller is a Christian theologian who writes in much the same way, and she's still around today, uh, and she's uh, a process thinker as well. Um, but I think uh, gives a lot that is very adaptable to, uh, to Judaism. So Rabbi Artson um, um, has been trying to do this uh, systematically from a Jewish point of view, and recently put out a book uh, called uh, The God of Becoming in Relationship, um, which was published this year by Jewish Lights. It's a very good book. I'll pass it around for show and tell if you want to see. Um, really accessible and uh, um, uh, clear thought. So um, if you want to uh, get a better understanding of what I'm going to talk about today, someone who's more articulate and thoughtful than I am, um, I recommend that uh, that book. Um, I also, for those of you who, who want, um, recently published an essay um, on um, how Torah comes to be from this point of view in uh, the conservative Judaism academic journal. Um, And uh, I have extra copies of that at home, but I can also make photocopies for anybody who wants to, uh, uh, who wants good bathroom reading. Who's got the copyright? I guess the rabbinical assembly has uh, the copyright. Okay, so uh, I'll ask the rabbinical assembly if I can make photocopies. You can get it online, I think, too, so I I think it's probably not such a big deal. Um, Yeah, I don't own the copyright to it, I guess. But uh, um, in any event, okay. So I want to start this with um, with with a little bit of a a personal story. So um, 
when I was growing up, I went to um, an Orthodox day school. And um, uh, for the most part, uh, during the time when I, I went from uh, first, through, well, I went to kindergarten to a conservative day school. My parents switched me to the Orthodox day school um, for various reasons, none of which really having to do with religion. I just thought it was a better place, better education, whatever. Um, so from first through eighth grade, I went to an Orthodox day school, and for most of the time, I really um, loved um, uh, my Jewish studies, and uh, um, you know, it was, it was something that uh, I got a lot of joy from. But around the time that I um, became a tween, you know, my, my middle school years, um, I started um, uh, as a, as a lot of kids do at that age, especially. Uh, well, anyway, a lot of kids do at that age. I started, um, you know. Um, uh, having more cynicism about uh, about uh, Judaism and asking a lot more questions and uh, wanting a lot more um, you know rational engagement um, and uh, from time to time I would feel that the uh, the view of God and of religion that was presented to me in my day school um, didn't correlate with reality as I experienced it. Um, so, um, one of the big ones that always sticks out in my mind is that in seventh grade, I think it was, we were learning, um, life sciences and in life sciences, you, that's that's the seventh grade term for biology. And, uh, when we're learning biology, we learn, um, uh, evolution, we learn, um, um, we learn the, you know, the, uh, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the length of the history of life on, on Earth and, the, um, you know, learn about uh, dinosaurs and fathers, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and then I would go to my Judaic studies class where my uh, uh, teacher, who I'm still very close with and, and have a lot of uh, admiration and, and, and love for, um, would uh, teach that um, God put dinosaur fossils in the earth to test our faith that the world is actually uh, less than 6,000 years old. Right? You know, carbon dating says they're 65 million years old. Right? That's God testing our faith to see you know, that we're... And that didn't really uh, jive uh, so well with me with my, with my seventh grade mind. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and other things like the, the big question, which is really, I think the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, uh, is a hard one with a, uh, traditional view of an, of an all powerful God. Um, and nevertheless, right. I would, I would hear things like, um, you know, um, you know, why, why does God let the Holocaust happen? And usually the answer is something like, well, it's a mystery that we don't understand or, um, or, you know, from our perspective, it seems like a bad thing, but from a bigger perspective, if you zoom out, right, it's a, in God's great plan, it's a really not such a bad thing. Um, and I had trouble with that as I imagine some of you do. Um, some people don't have as much trouble with that and whatever works for you theologically is okay. But if you do have trouble with that, like me, like I did and do, um, then uh, um, uh, then uh, and and thinking, you know, when you're in seventh eighth grade, you think that whatever you're being taught Jewishly is is what Judaism is, what Judaism says. So I started to have a problem not just with what my teachers were saying, but with Judaism. It took me a while to recover from that. Um, eventually, in high school, I was very involved in USY, and I started engaging in a Judaism that seemed much more open to uh, to question and debate and probing and, and rational analysis. Um, and it was much more appealing to me, and uh, that started me on a path toward the rabbinate. And I entered in, in, uh, to rabbinical school still struggling with this. On the one side, um, uh, in some ways, uh, uh, being drawn to Judaism 
uh, more in my teen years through a rational um, engagement with, uh, with, with Judaism, an open engagement with Jewish texts, which I really discovered in, in USY and in college, um, but also still having in my head, you know, the, uh, the, the point of view of my uh, teachers growing up when you're, when you're a child, these things, you know, very, really stick with you, um, that, that, uh, that, um, you can learn and question whatever you want, but that's not what Judaism says. This is what Judaism says. So I uh, entered rabbinical school with these two kind of uh, sides of me, this very um, uh, um, um, uh, questioning disposition, uh, but also um, struggling with what I imagine Judaism being like the legitimate Jewish approach to any given thing. Um, and, uh, and I entered rabbinical school with that, and uh, um, uh, I started studying with, uh, um, with among other people, uh, Brad Artson, um, who... Uh, who uh, is great a great teacher not only in um, articulating what his point of view is but in um, uh, really uh, uh, pushing a person to um, uh, to see what the other possibilities are within their own point of view um, and to uh, challenge the assumptions inherent in anybody's point of view over time um, I came around to um, uh, to really embracing uh, um, Rabbi Artson's uh, theology, um, in part because um, it enabled for um, a, um, a, a fairly, I think, traditional approach to Judaism um, that still allowed for um, a, a full and honest, uh, rational approach to life that didn't force you to discount um, all that you experience in the world and all that, say, science, um, both the natural and the social sciences, tell you about the world. That, to me, was a, um, a, 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 a big uh, challenge and uh, one that uh, process theology helped me resolve. And the other is that uh, enabled me to see uh, the, the Torah um, and rabbinic Judaism with, uh, with much more open eyes. And that's what I really want to think about today for, for a moment, um, is that um, we have, I think, been taught to read the Torah through a particular lens that may or may not be inherent to what the Torah and what rabbinic Judaism is actually saying. Right? So we um, often approach reading the Torah with a certain set of assumptions. Um, the assumptions are about what and who God is, and usually that's because that's what we've been uh, taught or given, um, whether by our Jewish teachers or by the kind of uh, dominant culture, which is very much influenced by Greek philosophy um, and how Greek philosophy influenced Christianity especially, but also Judaism. Right? And that is the God of the Omnis. Right? God is omnipotent, which means all-powerful, right? Uh, God is um, omniscient, which means what? All-knowing, all-knowing. And omnipresent, which means everywhere, right? Um, and then and we're also taught to believe, in addition to those things, that God is uh, uh, all-good, omnibenevolent, right? Um, and that, um, uh, that God has other characteristics. God is perfect and unchanging. Um, uh, uh, God is non-corporeal, right? God is uh, not physical. God is all spirit. Um, we're taught to uh, believe that God has no uh, human characteristics, right? God is wholly, totally other than uh, than than reality as we know it. Um, 
so we're we're uh, we're taught this uh, uh, dominant model of uh, of of what God is, and um, and uh, and then we go back and read the Torah, and we see things in the Torah, some things that may support that view, but a lot of things that don't really support that view, and then uh, having to kind of go through hoops to try to explain why things in the Torah don't really say what they say um, uh, w- when you read it with a uh, with just sort of a, um, a, a, a um, th- without the lens of the of the dominant philosophy, there are good reasons for uh, the the dominant philosophy, which I'm calling the dominant philosophy because it has been the way people have viewed God. Really, I think since uh, Aristotle, or really since Plato, I should say, um, and. Um, uh, so that means that uh, the authors of the Bible, I don't think, viewed God this way. The authors of the rabbinic literature, for the most part, didn't view God this way, although rabbinic literature kind of bleeds into the time uh, uh, post-Greek philosophy. Um, but um, the, the best scientific knowledge um, of the time of the Greek philosophers led the Greeks to conclude a few things. Right? The first is that, um, that, that the world is, um, is material and, is, um, and there are, there's imperfections uh, to, to uh, materiality. There is, uh, you know, materiality is prone to breaking down and dying and, and things like that. And the, one of the ways of dealing with that problem is saying that, uh, that this reality, this world, is uh, just a reflection of a more perfect reality. Right, ideas, the world of ideas, the world of thought, the world of spirit, the world of reason for the Greek philosophers, that's perfect reality. That can't break down, that can't uh, disintegrate, right? that can't uh, um, uh, degenerate. Right? And the material reality can. Right? And so the Greek philosophers devised a system in which there is a perfect non-corporeal reality and an imperfect material reality and, um, and, uh, and in some way, although they don't really do a good job of explaining how, in some way the uh, perfect non-material reality is responsible for generating the uh, imperfect material reality um, and so God is in the, in the side of the perfect uh, um, non-material reality and um, and is therefore um, has all of those omnis, right? Has to be perfect, has to be complete. Um, the problem with that is, first of all, there's not really a good explanation in Greek philosophy of how, how uh, um, the non-material becomes material. Right? We don't really know how you go from a completely intangible God to a completely tangible reality. We don't really know that. Um, so different philosophers had different points of view over time. Um, we, um, um, Aristotle has a concept called the unmoved mover, right? And you hear in that uh, concept that you already have inherent in there a contradiction, right? That how can you have a mover who is unmoved? Right? Uh, by virtue of moving, you are being moved by the object that you are moving. So there, there are, are inherent contradictions in Greek philosophy that the Greek philosophers acknowledged, right, but, but didn't really have the capability of, of resolving. Um, the other is that they didn't have 
biology and physics as we as we have it today. They didn't have astronomy in the same way that we, they were advanced for 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 the ancient world, um, but they didn't uh, um, they didn't know they didn't have string theory, right? They didn't have dark matter. They didn't have uh, black holes. Uh, they didn't have Copernicus, right? So um, so there's a lot that we know today scientifically that they didn't know then. That had they known it then, the the, um, the their approach might have been different. Um, uh, and uh, and the other uh, challenge um, is uh, is a uh, logical one, right? So if you have a God who is um, all powerful, say, um, then you have a problem that's that 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 the philosophers acknowledged. So here's one of the challenges that you have: if God is all powerful, then can God create a weight that is so heavy that God Himself is not able to lift? God is all-powerful, he should be able to create any kind of weight that God would want to. But if God creates a weight that God is unable to lift, then God is no longer all-powerful. Right? So that's one of, that's, that's a logical problem with the system that's created. So that system was very influential. It seemed like the best accounting for the data that, that we knew. And the rabbis, uh, uh, later rabbis, and especially in the medieval period, looking at the Bible, um, saw evidence for, uh, for, to view God that way. Okay, so if we look at the top you know, list here, um, you have some uh, examples of texts from the Bible that would seem to support that you know, dominant view of the God of the Omnis, right? So in Genesis, God, uh, um, uh, God tells Abraham that Sarah is going to have a child when she's very old, and uh, Sarah laughs about it, right? Uh, if you remember the story, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I in truth bear a child, old as I am? Is nothing too wondrous for the Lord? I will return to you at the time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Right? So it seems to imply in that uh, passage that, um, that God is capable of anything. Right? And by anything, anything. Right? Um, similar ideas expressed in Exodus chapter 4. So Moses says to the Lord, this is the burning bush, Moses said to the Lord, Please, O Lord, I have never been a man of words, either in times past or now that you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Right? I can't go to Pharaoh. I can't talk to him. And the Lord said to him, Who gives man speech? Who makes him dumb or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Right? I, God, am capable of uh, doing supernatural things, is what it seems like saying. Right? I, can, I control nature. Right? So if I am uh, uh, predisposed to see uh, the world and to view God through the lens of omnipotence, right, I would look at that passage and say, ah, here's proof that God is omnipotent. Um, right, Jeremiah says a similar thing, chapter 32, Behold, I am the Holy One, God of all flesh. Is anything too wondrous for me? Right? Same idea. Um, omnipresence, right? You have the in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Bhava Batra, 25a, God's presence is in all places. Right? Um, God is everywhere. Right? When we sing that song to kids, right? Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere, up, up, down, down, right, left, and all around. Here, there, and everywhere, that's where God can be found. Um, okay, so, so the rabbis uh, make a statement like that, right? Um, and it seems to be supported by, um, by 
the the Greek philosophical view. Although the the problem with that in the Greek philosophical view is that if uh, if God is not material, then God <laughs> isn't really anywhere. God can't really be in physical reality if God is uh, is totally separate, totally other than physical reality. That's another problem. How does something that's totally separate from physical reality influence or or, or affect physical reality? Which is one of the reasons that um, uh, Aristotle has this unmoved mover theory, which is sort of like if you studied American history, you know that a lot of the founding fathers were deists, which means that, you know, a, a watchmaker God, right? God set the pieces of the watch in motion and then just kind of stepped back. That's kind of like uh, Aristotle's view, and that's kind of like Maimonides' view of God, um, where God, you know, uh, started the work of creation and, and, and put all the pieces in place, all the, all the machineries in place, but then stepped back. Um, Although that you have a problem if you had that view of God uh, in reading the Bible, because then how do you explain things like the ten plagues, which seem very clearly to be God directly uh, engaging and influencing the world? Right? Maimonides says, "Well, those were built into nature from the beginning." Right? The Red Sea was built into nature from the beginning. Right? That was part of the watch machinery. Um, but you also have problems uh, in that view of. Um, um, of uh, 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 well, we say it every day when we recite the uh, kedusha in the Amida. We say kadosh, 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 Adonai tsevaot melo kol haaretz kevodo. Right, that the whole world is filled with God's glory. God's glory in the Bible is a synonym for God's presence. Right, so how can the whole world be filled with God's presence if God is totally other than the world? Right? But anyway, so the, the rabbis of the Talmud uh, um, uh, asserted that God's presence is in all places. Uh, Genesis chapter 4. Uh, verse 7. Surely, alright, so um, uh, this is a uh, uh, another uh, statement or, or uh, axiom of faith in some ways of, uh, of, of rabbinic Judaism, but a problematic one from the point of view of the dominant theology. So, um, chapter 4, verse 7, this is after Cain kills, or right before Cain kills Abel. Surely if you do right, there is uplift. But if you do, if you do not do right, sin couches at the door. Its urge is toward you, yet you can be its master. What is that saying? You have control. You have free will. You can choose to do good. You can choose to do bad. Right? If God is all-powerful, then free will is a problem. Right? Because if God is all-powerful, then it means that you don't really have free will because God is in control of everything. Um, and especially if you believe God is omniscient, if God knows everything, right? if God knows everything that's going to happen, right, then you don't really have a choice about what you're doing, right? If God knows that I'm going to, if I have a choice this morning of, uh, of uh, cornflakes and Rice Krispies, um, it seem, may seem to me like I have a choice of cornflakes versus Rice Krispies, but God knows that I'm going to choose Rice Krispies, right? So it's not really a choice. Right? It may feel like a choice, but it's not really a choice. So you can't really have free will in the dominant system. Uh, but yet the Bible seems to say that you should be able to have free will. That's a problem. So um, uh, um, so that's you. That problem, by the way, leads to uh, this. Why I have it is number six here. Um, uh, a statement uh, of uh, Hillel in uh, Hillel. Yeah, Hillel in Mishnah Avot um, that says everything is seen, yet freedom is given. Right. So the rabbis there are struggling with that par- very paradox, and the truth is that um, that people have debated this passage in, in, in Avot for a long time because, at least on the surface, you can't have both things. Right. You can't have everything seen and yet freedom. 
full freedom. The world is judged with goodness, and everything depends on the majority of the quantity of deeds. Uh, I actually should say on the quantity of deeds, um, not the majority of the quantity of deeds. Um, all right, so um, uh, the, that's the rabbis dealing with the same kind of thing as can God create a weight that's so big that God himself can't lift it? Yeah. I, I don't want to get you off track, but this sounds so much like the Mahser, all these quotes, because it's, you know, the medieval approach, which you mentioned, where a mm-hmm. lot of this was adopted. It, I, I struggle a great deal at Rosh Hashanah yeah, and Yom Kippur yeah. when I read all this kind of stuff and try and make sense of it. Right. So um, I, I brought a passage a little bit later on about, um, uh, it's, you can see it in number eight in Jeremiah um, on the next page. Right, okay. uh, Just like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hands, O Israel, which of you uh, um, uh, are following along at home, that sounds very familiar to what's in the Moxes, a whole poem that, you know, like clay in the hands of the potter, like, uh, like a ship in the hands of a captain, like you know, glass in the hands of a glass blower, which is describing the relationship between God and Israel. So um, I'm not going to get too much into that, but uh, Rabbi Artson has a great, you can listen to it on podcast, a great talk on that very subject, how we've been misunderstanding that poem and that passage from Jeremiah, because looking at it through the dominant lens, you're led to believe that it's talking about how God has all the power and how we have no power. But as anybody who's ever worked with clay knows that Clay, you can't do anything you want with clay. Clay pushes back, right? And clay has limitations. Um, and the potter has limitations, too, in, in working with clay. So God may be able to shape us, but there's limits to God's ability to do that. And there's actually a relationship, a give and take, between uh, clay and potter. So the images of God in the Bible, uh, God in the holidays, and I'm glad you brought this up, which are very much, they describe a very powerful God and describe a God uh, in the language of uh, of, of um kingship and sovereignty and thing like that, things like that. Um, but first of all, um, even the authors of those passages and the medievals would, would acknowledge that those are all metaphors, right? And all metaphors are inherently limited. Um, in some ways, the only way we can speak about anything is through metaphor, but certainly about God. Um, and the other is that even within that metaphor, um, you're talking about uh, a power relationship rather than uh, someone who has all the power and somebody who has no power, right? So the idea of an absolute monarch, um, which we get taught in you know grade school history, um, is really not true. There's never really been an absolute monarch any time in history because the monarch always needs. Um, we learned this in the 18th century. The monarch always needs the consent of the subjects, and subjects can rebel, right? And uh, um, at, at least needs the support of uh, of what's it called of uh, of um, uh, the aristocracy or the army, right? The army doesn't agree with the absolute monarch. Well, you know, there's, um, if you watch Game of Thrones, you know this to be true, right? So, um, so that even, even within that metaphor with, of the high holidays, it's, um, it's, it doesn't have to be seen as describing an, an all powerful God. Um, Okay, and then uh, the final one, which is, uh, this is an interesting one, number seven here. Um, Isaiah says about God, I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Right? God uh, creates everything, is responsible for everything. Um, if, you, uh, if, if you recognize, that sounds very familiar to something that's in our morning prayers, where we say, um, 
Yotzer or uvore choshech oseh shalom uvore atakol, that God um, uh, creates, forms light and creates darkness, makes peace and uh, and creates everything. We, they, they cha- the liturgy changes the Hebrew ra, evil, that's in Isaiah, to hakol, meaning everything. Um, probably because they didn't want to um, bring up evil in the morning davening, uh, and maybe it means a, a similar thing, but basically it is God's responsible for everything. Now, there is a problem in that, right? For God to be responsible for everything, including evil, um, me, has to mean in some way that God isn't all good, right? So that's a challenge. You, know, you can't. So the the problem with the omnis is you can't really have all of them simultaneously, right? If God is omnipotent then it's hard for uh, you to have freedom, it's, and it's also hard to consider God to be all good. Unless you want to say something like, well, you know, our understanding of good is different than God's understanding of good, which you can do. The problem with that is that um, if you do that, then morality starts to have no meaning. Right? If you can't define as bad the murder of one and a half million children in the Holocaust, uh, then bad doesn't really mean anything anymore. Right, so that's a that's a problem in the dominant view. So before I go on to uh, the alternative uh, possibility, anybody have any thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah. Well, I guess I'm on the Maimonides side. I'm not sure yet. Okay. I may never be sure. Okay. Um, I believe that God put man and woman on this earth to make choices, mm-hmm. and if we live a, as much of a holy life as we can with, because we're not perfect that we would be able to avoid evil and have peace within our universe mm-hmm. so I have a difficult time with these metaphors or these one through seven uh, they're not metaphors, one through seven because I, I struggle with that yeah. I feel that we have choices as human beings right and um, with these children of the Holocaust, or Holocaust itself, man created that, right. not God. So God, to me, is not evil. God gave us the choice to be good or evil. Right. That, but, so that's Maimonides, are you saying? So you're, you're uh, saying that in, that's in, in, to be his... Well, in, in, a way, in a way, yes, right? Uh, in the sense that God isn't directly involved in those sort of things. Um, but... The the and I'm with you on that, right? The what I have, what I feel like I have to give up in order to have that view is a view of either God being all powerful or God being all knowing, maybe both, right? Um, because in order for those free choices to really be free, right? Then then I have to. It, it could be that God voluntarily gave up God's power, right? Uh, in order to do that, that's the Kabbalistic view of uh, there's uh, there's Ein Sof, which is an infinite, perfect, complete God, but God had to do what they called simsum uh, to contract God's self, to limit God's self, in order to create materiality. And part of that limitation uh, gives up power and also maybe gives up knowledge. Um, so within that system, I'm, I'm, I'm I can live with that, right? Um, you have to be willing to live with a God that's either not uh, omnipotent or omniscient in that view, I think, because in order for there to be really free choice, um, then God can't be in control, right? But then it's your consciousness that God, I believe God has given us yeah. to make that decision, you know, yes. to, to choose from um, liking your neighbor as yourself or, or giving tzedakah, it's your choice, right. or accepting the fact that... <clears throat> 
you know, a plane fell out of the sky and, and, and is they can't find it. Right. I mean, those things are man's doing. Right. And does God direct man to do that? I don't believe so. I believe that God's there, mm -hmm. and I believe in Beshert. Yeah. Uh, that things happen for a reason, but I don't believe that God gave gave us this earth, I believe. I, I, I'm talking in circles because yeah. I struggle with this. Yeah. To do what we feel as as humankind to be um, what we can be to give to this earth, we can give to this earth. Mm -hmm. Whether it be good or evil, evil forget about, but it happens. I mean, that's my struggle. Yeah. Okay. What's the use of prayer and being good? Uh, I mean, I'm thinking, yeah. oh, you look before World War II, I mean, the J Jewish community, and these were holy people, they were... They went to synagogue. They they had they gave sadaka. They, right. I mean, the things that they did because the places were smaller. Uh, you didn't. You did. We don't know any poor people, right. but the poor people were right down the road. How they took care of each other. Right. I mean, like my father said, these were all saints, and right. they were all killed. Uh, why were they killed? You right. Know? Right. So there, there are a couple of things I want to say to, to, to both of you. And so the, the first is, I think you're exactly right in, in both regard. And uh, Maimonides uh, himself, I think, has still probably the most useful way of looking at uh, the problem of, of, of evil and the suffering of the, of the righteous. And he says that there are really four things that are responsible for uh, evil in this world. The first is... Um, um, uh, and, and sometimes we need to be uh, um, honest with ourselves about this. Um, so one is it's possible that you brought it on yourself, right? So that, that is a possibility, right? Um, it's possible from a spiritual point of view, Maimonides said. I'm not sure if I totally agree with this, but it's possible from a spiritual point of view. Like, you, you know, your mezuzah's hung wrong and you could be punished for it. That's what Maimonides said. But more from a physical, from a rational point of view, right? Um, it, you know, it, you didn't take care of your body. It may be your fault that you got sick, Right. Um, at least in part, it may be your fault that you got sick. I'm not saying that everybody who gets sick is at fault for it, um, but it, it, that might be one of the reasons. Right. Another reason is what uh, uh, built in uh, suffering, what we consider to be suffering and evil, is built into materiality. Right. So um, uh, the the way the world is designed to operate there are going to be hurricanes and earthquakes and things like that, right? And, um, and those are necessary for the functioning of the world. It's bad from a human perspective, especially when you live on the coast, right? Um, but, uh, um, but, it, it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's not technically evil. It just causes suffering for people who don't deserve it. Yeah. Is that scientific, though? Because the earth moves the way it does because of the stars and the moon and the sun. Right. So is that... Jewish, or is that you know? That's my. my, my so my was uh, was a scientist. He was a doctor, right? And uh, um, uh, and I and I think this is true, really, of, of all the medieval philosophers, and I think ought to be true of modern Jewish philosophers as well. The medieval philosophers um, wanted to incorporate the best of what they knew scientifically um, with the with the best of what they knew spiritually. Um, uh, uh, um, Rav Sadja Gaon, who was a great uh, medieval Jewish philosopher, said that there are four ways of knowing uh, things, and they all have to be in harmony in order for anything to be true, right? Um, so, the, so he said, um, uh, experience, um, uh, reason, um, revelation, and tradition, right? And all four of those things need to be saying the same thing, or you're understanding one of them wrong. 
or more than one of them wrong. But anyway, back to Maimonides, what he's saying, so, um, so built into materiality, you have, and built into our own personal body materiality, right? It's the, he didn't know it this way, but it's the nature of um, cellular biology to generate cancer. It's just part of the reproduction of cells generates mutations, and that's what happens, um, especially when an organism lives for a long time. Um, so it's built into the system, unfortunately, but there's no other way around it, right? If you, uh, if, if you want material existence, you have to deal with the, the breakdown of material existence. Um, and then the final thing is, um, is human freedom, right? So um, uh, people utilizing their freedom to do things to you that you wish they wouldn't do to you. Right, and so in that sense, right, the the Holocaust uh, happens because of the exercise of human freedom. The Holocaust gets stopped also because of the exercise of human freedom. So there's a balance to it, or there can be a balance to it. But uh, but anyway, but Maimonides um, would say, I think that um, that there's no direct involvement of God in in those in in those things. Um, um, but Maimonides does have a problem in saying that because he also thinks that God's responsible for everything. So that's part of the problem. So is we are we so as we as humans forgiving God? Well, all right. So the, the, this area of philosophy is called theodicy, um, which literally means justifying God. Right. So part of the job of theodicy is to get God off the hook for bad things happening, um, and. Part of the reason we do that is because we don't want to pray to a God who is responsible for evil. Um, and I think that that's fair. And we also see God as the source of our morality, right? So we don't want to uh, use as the source of our morality somebody who's responsible for evil. So I think that there are good reasons for that. So yes, in part, it is to get God off the hook. Um, and in part, um, it's also to, um, to not blame the victims, right? So if you, um, if you look at the Holocaust through the dominant lens... Um, it's hard to come up with an argument that doesn't blame the victims in some way, right? Um, so some people will say, well, it was because of Reform Judaism that the Holocaust happened, right? There are people today who will still say that, unfortunately, right? Um, or, um, you know, uh, uh, or, or, or because of the Enlightenment or, um, or something of that, uh, of that nature. Or even if you say, you know, um, it's part of this uh, uh, grand scheme, um, that God has, um, then um, then it still blames the victims in some way, right? They weren't they weren't yet fitting part of God's grand scheme. Or even if you say, oh well, good came out of it because the state of Israel, right? That in some way also blames the victims too, right? You could say, that, but that's a misnomer. I mean, yeah. it, it didn't. Oh, I, I hear. I agree. I agree. I, I, I'm so mad whenever yeah. anybody ever says that. Yeah. Because the Halotzim were in Israel in yeah. 1890 yes, right. some. That's when it started. Right. And so, eventually that would have been in Israel without a Holocaust. Right. So I, 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 I'm with you 100%. I'm just saying if you wanted to say that, you, you would still be blaming. That, right. People do say it. Um, uh, by the way, that's <laughs> if you experience what goes on in Israel for the next eight, nine days, it's exactly that. Yes. I need to say it, but right. it's exactly Connecting that. Yom HaShoah to Yom HaAtzerut. Right. It's exactly um, it, it is. I mean, listen, there is a, uh, people would say it. I mean, there's a piece of truth in it, which is the acceleration, the urgency of creating a state in 1948 was at least in part related to the tragedy of the Holocaust. So there is a piece of truth to it. It's part of the Israeli mythology of, uh, of you know, we need to protect ourselves against Iran because of the Holocaust, right? We need Israel to be strong because of the... So it's... But there was Herzl. I, I hear you. I hear you. All these right. great men that were working, I, striving toward it before the Holocaust. I, I hear you. 100% I hear you. Um, uh, let's just leave it at that. Okay. Yeah.
Does our belief in God have to be an either-or belief? Meaning what? Well, you've outlined all of these wonderful quotes mm-hmm. that support one way of thinking, mm-hmm. but we're going into this new emergent mm-hmm. view, and I so do we have to have one or another? Does our belief in God have to be based on one side or the other? Can we not have a belief in God that is not? Um, you can have whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's free will. It's free will. Um, no, so the way I would the way I would phrase it is is like this. I think that um, there's the God of experience and the God of philosophy. So the God of philosophy requires consistency. The God of experience doesn't have to require consistency. So I, um, and, and that's helpful because you know philosophers also uh, is uh, theologians philosophers find it hard to pray. Because prayer is about the God of experience. What? I'm sorry, God of experience? Yeah. God the, of philosophy? Yeah. Okay. So those two things, are, you know, um, my experience of, uh, of being married to my wife is, is different than if I were to take a step back and sort of like analyze it from a rational point of view. So there's my wife of experience and my wife of theory, right? Fortunately, I live much more with my wife of experience than I do with my wife of theory, um, although in theory she'd be really good too. Uh, but, um, but I'm glad I get the experience. So I think the same is true with, with God, and, and they don't have to mesh up uh, um, exactly. In some ways it's, it's uh, um, counterproductive to have them mesh up exactly. Which is what, what I wanted to, one second Lou, which is what I wanted to say to um, Bernice's question about prayer. I think prayer becomes problematic with the dominant view of God. Because an all-powerful, perfect, omniscient God, why do my prayers make any sense? Right? God knows what I need, so why do I need to say it? And if God wanted to give me those things, God would have already given me those things, right? God has it in God's power to do it. Um, so, so prayer, and if God is perfect, then God is unmoving. So no matter how, well, what I say and how nice I say it and, and how heartfelt it is that I say it, God's un, the unmoved mover, right? God is not moved by those pleas. So prayer doesn't really make sense in that, in that framework. That's petition, prayer of petition, asking God for something. But we also praise yeah, okay, so why does praise make sense in that context? Why does God like the sweet smell of burning sacrifice? Right, right, right. So, the, so we'll get into some of that, but yeah. Um, can, can I just say... Yeah, Lou, yeah. Uh, Charlotte, if you just sat here and heard Ralph argue with Rabbi Knopf on this issue, he absolutely took the position that the first things we've just read is it, that's the end. Right, right. And that was how he experienced to live with God. Right. Um... Right. Uh, th- yeah. This and, and and this conversation is easier because be, because of Ralph. Because of, first of all, because Ralph's uh, pushing me on thinking about this over over time. Um, it brought him to Minion all the time. Didn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, he felt well, listen. Closer to God because of his practice. Well, that right. So th- th- that's that. That's what I was was tried to say to Ralph o- over time, is that I think that his God of experience was not a God of rational consistency, um, which. That was my opinion about it, um, and uh, and 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 Ralph is a very smart and very passionate man, and so um, had had his point of view too. Uh, but uh, but that it seemed to me that that a God that um, I felt was that I was that good friends with and was moved by my by my pleas and my prayers um, can't really be this unchanging, all powerful, all knowing God of the philosophers. I feel that God 
and we, separately and collectively, form a couple, form a relationship. Yeah. And I think part of the duty on our side, individually and collectively, is to express gratitude and thought and hope and fear and whatever else. And if we just expect to be given because it's supposed to be coming right. to us, we lose that component of ourselves. So good. Um, the, the relationship piece is a good transition because in any relationship, there have to be two sides um, that are both active within the relationship. They both have a role in the relationship. If God is all-powerful, um, then there's not really any room for human beings in the relationship. And in, it turns out that it doesn't really make sense. Because, um, think about it this way. If I am all-powerful, how much effort does it take to, uh, to move something or lift something or impact something that is zero-powerful? No, and no effort, right? If I'm all-powerful, then everything else is zero-powerful. So that actually means that being all-powerful actually means having no power at all in some way, right? So the only way for it to make sense is for God to be really powerful, but for humans to also have some amount of power too. That's, it's got to work that way. Um, so God has a lot of power, but maybe not all the power. Right? And we have power, but not as much power as God. That, I think, makes much more rational sense. And in fact, I think that that's the, the, the best way for the Bible to make sense, too. Why does free will make sense in, in, in other ways? Why, does God, why do we say that God needs us to do tikkun olav and repair the world, to be God's partners in creation, which we say throughout, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's in the Torah, it's in, it's in our liturgy, right? So why, why do we say that if it's not for the fact that, uh, that God, whether by choice or by... Uh, rational limitation is limited in power, and we have some of the power too, right? Um, so let me just go through a few of these uh, uh, texts that I think um, indicate a different view of God. If we're looking at them honestly, without the lens of Greek philosophy, um, that, uh, that that may help us see God in a different way. Okay, so the first is um, the the first chapter of Genesis, the opening verses of Genesis, which um, by the in, in the dominant view were um, were usually seen and translated in one way that grammatically actually don't make sense, and uh, and and therefore um, should be read in the grammatically correct way, and therefore changes the philosophy behind it. So usually, how would you how would you normally hear translated the opening words of Genesis? In the beginning, right? right there. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, which means that there's a finite, fixed time of beginning. Nothing coming before it. Something coming after. God uh, initiated the process. Right. That is um, very much in keeping with the view of the unmoved mover, with the view of create creatio ex nihilo, which is what the philosophers called it. Right. God creating the universe from nothing. Actually, not what Aristotle said. Aristotle said that the um, that the world uh, that matter. Matter is eternal, um, which scientifically actually makes sense. We say that matter can either be created nor destroyed. Um, so to say that God created the world from nothing was actually um, a, a, a a fairly early Jewish point of view. Um, and Maimonides was reading Aristotle and said, um, what Aristotle is saying makes sense, but tradition tells us that God created the world from nothing. We'll go with the created out of nothing thing, but if science were to ever prove otherwise, we could easily reinterpret uh, the Torah. But anyway, that's how we normally interpret it, that there was a fixed moment of beginning, nothing beforehand, 
except for maybe God and uh, and uh, something afterward, right? But that's not actually what uh, what the uh, Torah says. The Torah has two has three sentences, three verses that are actually one continuous sentence. Um, so the sentence should read like this, which is how the JPS translation translates it: When God began to create heaven and earth, right? So there is no fixed moment of beginning. Um, no, uh, no sense of what happens before beginning and not, right? It picks up the story um, after the creation of the world at some point, right? What, at what point it is, I don't know. Uh, how long existed before that, I don't know. Um, uh, what existed before that, I don't know, right? The Torah is not interested in that question. The Torah is interested at the moment that God enters the story. But it's more than when God began to do it, because before you begin to do anything, you have to think about it. I understand that, but the Torah is not interested. The Torah is, let's say, agnostic on that question. The Torah doesn't tell us what God was thinking about or what not. No, 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 but this implies it to me. Okay, maybe it does. Um, um, uh, It's a recognition that God was there. Sure, at some point. Uh, So here's here's a, a question. Did God create the world or did the world create God? And, uh, and in this verse from Genesis, we actually don't know the answer to that question. Um, right? Uh, because right, be, when God began to create heaven and earth, the earth being unformed and void with darkness over the surface of the deep, right? It sure seems that before God enters the scene, there's stuff. Right? Um, so one of the... Uh, philosophical theories is that um, it's not that human beings invented God, but that God is um, is. You ever heard the phrase uh, "the whole is greater than the sum of its parts"? Right, that's the the term emergent here. That God um, grows over time. Right, the 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 collective energy of the cosmos um, that is shaped by, but also shapes in a lot of ways the cosmos and our world. That's what we call God, right? And, and, and from the Jewish point of view, there's no way to scientifically disprove this. From the Jewish point of view, that God, that, that force, that energy, sure looks like it um, at least developed over time a will, a trajectory, right? It seems to me that there's, it se- the scientists may not acknowledge this because um, uh, Darwinian evolution posits the randomness and, and, and that sort of thing. And they, there's re- they're right from a scientific point of view um, because you can't um, observe or quantify um, a mutation that may not be random, right? Um, but it sure looks like the universe is going from less diversity to more diversity, to less complexity, from less complexity to more complexity, from less consciousness to more consciousness, Right? Or disorder to order. From disorder to order, from cosm- from chaos to cosmos, and that is, I think, one of the things that's 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 said here, right? Be- in the beginning, there was chaos. There was stuff, but there was chaos. God is the force that uh, that that uh, um, organizes the chaos, right? Um, God speaks to the darkness, light, right? Um, right. So the, there's a darkness over the surface of the deep. The earth was unformed and void. It was chaos. Darkness over the surface of the deep. A wind from God hovering over the water. God said, let there be light. And there was light. All right. I'm not going to dwell too much time on that. But you could see just from that, that, um, that how you, what your philosophy is will impact how you read that verse. And I think that the contextual way of reading it is not the way the dominant philosophy has had us read it. 
Okay? Um, but it gets even deeper than that. So look at the, right before the Noah story. Uh, how many of you saw uh, Noah, the movie? No one's yeah. seen it yet. Wow, it I haven't seen it, but I want to. I, I, I have a I have a toddler home, so you don't get to go out to the movies a lot. But uh, uh, we should maybe take a synagogue trip to go see it. So, um, right. The Eternal saw how great was man's wickedness on earth, and how the, every plan devised by his mind was nothing but evil all the time. And the Eternal regretted that God had made man on earth, and God's heart was saddened. Now, for God to regret. Sure seems like a challenge to God's omniscience and perfection, right? If God, right, if God knows everything, then God would have gotten it right, right? If God was perfect, then why didn't God get it right? Yeah. Are there two people here, or two beings, and the eternal? Well, so uh, that's a good. That, so that that's more my translation, but the the authors of the Bible probably it's the awkwardness of the English. Um, it may be possible that the authors of the Bible actually were writing about two different gods, one named um, Adonai and one named Elohim, um, but probably not. They were probably talking They're about talking one about god. Personalities, God's uh, image, maybe, or just different names for the same phenomenon, um, or different people writing them, or different people writing it. Sorry that I did this. I as God is saying, I am sorry. Yes, that I right. Did this. Exactly. Yes, right. Very confusing. Yeah, sorry about that. That's the problem with the translation more than anything. Um, um, it doesn't help that I did the translation pretty quickly, and so I, I switched from eternal to God to his. I meant to take out the his, but anyway. But you see what I'm saying, right? So um, now, if you look at the Bible through the dominant lens, you can interpret that, but you have to kind of go through hoops to interpret it, right? Uh, you have to explain how that makes sense with an all-knowing and perfect God. Right? Easier to say that God isn't all-knowing and all-perfect, and that helps to explain why God can regret doing something. All right, uh, Genesis 18. Famous story, God wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Says, I need to check in with my buddy Abraham about this. Right? So the Lord had said, shall I hide from Abraham what, am I, what I am about to do? Since Abraham is to become a great and populous nation, and all the nations of the earth are to bless themselves by him. For I have singled him out, that he may instruct his children and his posterity to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right, in order that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Uh, now, I think a side question, but maybe a related question, is why does God feel the need to check in with Abraham about this? Um, um, you know, what is, like, I get what God is saying about Abraham, that he's an important person, but so what, right? He's uh, a partner. Okay, fine. So if he's a partner, then that means uh, that God isn't all-powerful, right? Or it, it has to mean that God's not all-powerful. God is at least relinquishing some of his power to enable Abraham's space to be a partner, and the choice to choose whether or not he's going to be a partner. We'll get to that. He's testing Abraham. Ah, so the test thing is a really good question. We'll get to the test thing in a second. Um, but the test thing uh, is a challenge, right? You usually only test somebody if you don't know how they're going to do on the test, right? You want to find out, are you going to get an A, a B, or a C, or a D? I don't know. I, if, you, if God knew if Abraham was going to fail the test, there'd be no point in testing right, him, right, right? right? So, okay, so 
the Lord said, the outrage of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grave. I will go down to see whether they have acted altogether according to the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will take note. That's interesting. I will go down to see whether or not they have. Right? I think that there's something wrong there. Right? I don't really know. And then Abraham, uh, so the men went from there. Sodom and Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham came forward and said, will you sweep away the innocent along with the guilty? What if there should be 50 innocent within the city? Will you then wipe out that place and not forgive it for the sake of the innocent? and 50 who are in it, far be it from you to do such a thing, to bring death upon the innocent as well as the guilty, so that the innocent and guilty fare alike, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the Lord answered, if I find within the city of Sodom 50 innocent ones, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Now, if you know the rest of the story, the dot, dot, dot there, you know the rest of the story, it turns out that there are not uh, enough innocent people to save the city. Um, but it seems like from a, from a basic reading of this text, that God doesn't know yet whether or not there are enough people to save the city. Right? Um, okay. All right, here's the test thing again. We won't dwell on this anymore, but uh, this is the Akedah, right? The, the binding of Isaac. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. He said to him, Abraham, and he answered, here I am. And he said, take your son, your favored one, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. Right, so um, that that brings up all sorts of questions about God's goodness, of course. Um, but it becomes less problematic, I guess, if um, if God really do- maybe more problematic. I don't know, but if God really doesn't know how the test is going to turn out, and to say that it's a test when it's not really a test is a weird choice of words by the authors of the Bible. Um, so that's uh, um, uh, I think an inherent challenge there. I think. Uh, th- that passage is easier in two ways. One, if you don't read it through a uh, certain philosophical lens, but the other is um, is if you see it as a composite text of different authors. Um, uh, so the the test thing actually may be a an addition to the text that wasn't there. Um, anyway, all right. So let's just we just want to fly through. Um, okay, Exodus. This one's a great one. We talk about it, the Seder. The, the New American Haggadah points this out. Um, um, the one that was just edited by, uh, by uh, Charlotte's former student, Jonathan Safran Foer. Um, uh, so, the, Exodus 6, also the burning bush. The Lord said to Moses, You shall soon see what I will do to Pharaoh. He shall let them go because of a greater might. Indeed, because of a greater might, he shall drive them from his land. Right? To say that God is all-powerful... It would be a weird choice of words to say a greater might than a pharaoh, right? So um, I think the intention of the text is to say that God is more powerful than pharaoh, but not necessarily all-powerful, and there's a difference there, right? If God were all-powerful, first of all, why need why, why the plagues, right? Um, why couldn't God have just snapped God's fingers, a faulty metaphor because if God is perfect, God doesn't have fingers to snap, right? Um, and and swoop the people out. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this always has bothered me because you don't have the quote of the 400 years and then I'll bring them out in his conversation with Abraham, right? which seems to reflect that we're all powerful. You know, why are you going to do this is a different question, right. but he does it and then he brings them out. He does keep his word using his power, whatever it may be. Right, right. 
Um, which is problematic if you uh, um, if you try to evaluate how much the the commentators, the classical commentators, go through hoops to try to figure right. out um, uh, exactly how it was 400 years, and most of them come to the conclusion that it wasn't really that God uh, um, took them out before time was ready because um, God was so moved with compassion for them, um, so eager to dis- to distribute justice um, that God was willing to break God's own promise. Of course, if you go that route, then it challenges God's perfection and omniscience, right? Alright, here's a different one. Here's a more, more challenging one. A long time after that, the king of Egypt died. Earlier in Exodus, the Israelites were groaning under the bondage and cried out, and their cry for help from the bondage rose up to God. God heard their moaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. The Hebrew is Vayeda Elohim. God knew, right? It sure seems from that passage that until the Israelites were crying out to God, God didn't know what was going on in Egypt, and God wasn't prepared to do anything about it. Right? Um, So, if you read the Bible just from a basic reading, um, the idea of God's uh, omnipotence and omniscience is is a really challenging one in there. I could, we could go on, right? Uh, the Lord said further to Moses, I see that this is a stiff-necked people. Now let me be that my anger may blaze forth against them and that I may destroy them and make of you a great nation, right? Like, it's a similar thing to the, the story of the flood. How did God not know that before God decided to take them out of Egypt, right? Um, unless they have real freedom, unless God doesn't know the future before it happens. Right? And then Moses argues back with God to save the people, right? How can God be unmoved if God is swayed by Moses' petition, right? So that's the prayer issue. Um, all right, I want to, because we're at, almost out of time, um, just want to go on, right? like, like, clay, like Jeremiah, like clay in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hands, O Israel, right? Um, so we often take that to mean that God is all-powerful and we're just, you know, this mush of, of, of clay. But in truth, as I mentioned to, uh, in response to Lou's question before, um, that's not really what that passage is saying, right? Clay has agency, um, and a potter has limited agency, um, Psalms 14.5, God is present in the circle of the righteous. That seems to contradict the idea that God is everywhere at all times. God is present, um, in the words of Menachem Mendel of Kotsk, where you let God in. Um, Exodus 25, chapter 8, let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. Right? Okay, so you can interpret that creatively if you view God as being everywhere. It's a symbol of God's presence. Right? If you want to read the Bible more basically, um, I think it's perfectly reasonable to read that as the authors of the Bible thought that God literally would be present in that place. Maybe God would be in other places too, but God would be literally dwelling in that sanctuary. Um, So, a great passage that I love in uh, this idea of the relationship between God's power and uh, our free will, which seem to be mutually exclusive, we have this statement by the rabbis. And, and by the way, the rabbis are a good example of people who, um, who, who have this great division between um, the God of experience and the God of philosophy. The rabbis didn't do systematic philosophy. They were not really concerned with uh, whether or not their God made rational sense. They were more concerned with whether their God lined up with their experience of God. Um, but here's what they said. Everything is in the hands of heaven except for fear of heaven. Right? As it says, and now, O Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear God? Right? Um, So, 
if everything is in the hand of heaven except for the fear of heaven, in a lot of ways, Reisel, that's what you were saying before, right? God is in control of everything except for whether or not we are willing to follow the commandments. The challenge that the Talmud then comes back with, well, is fear of heaven such a small thing? No, it's everything, right? The, a lot of human suffering has to do with our freedom, with, with you know, people deciding to um, elect Nazis, right? Um, and then for Nazis deciding that they're going to use that power to exterminate 12 million people, right? So, um, so when say everything is in the hand of heaven except for the fear of heaven, well, that's saying that there's a lot not in the hand of heaven, right? Um, and, and then just to conclude this thought, um, we read this in the Haftorah and Hanukkah, um, and, uh, and, and this may be a helpful way of, uh, of kind of demonstrating what, uh, what process sees the place of God and, and the role of God, if God is not all-powerful, if God is not um, omniscient. Um, right? Not by might and not by power, but by my spirit or by my breath, says the Lord of hosts. Right? Which, um, which can mean a few things, um, but I think one of the ways of interpreting that is that um, God doesn't have coercive power. God doesn't impose God's will on us, on human beings. Um, God uh, tries to hold out the um, a, a model for us of the of the best possible choice. God tries to lead us in the right direction. The um, the image that the process thinkers often use is a lure. L U R E. God tries to lure us to goodness, to righteousness, to justice. Um, but the choice is really ours, whether to follow that lure or to not. And every choice we make uh, puts us in a new place in the process of our becoming. And in each place, we're limited in some way by the choices we make, but yet there's always held out in front of us the lure of the divine to move in the direction of God and of godliness. We can choose to follow it or we cannot. And with each successive step, there's another, we have a range of possibilities, one of which, or maybe more than one of which, is God's lure, which we can follow. But God doesn't force us to follow that lure. Um, God doesn't coerce us into following that lure. The choice is ultimately ours for the benefit of ourselves, for the benefit of the others around us, for the benefit of the planet, and in a lot of ways this is the relationship piece for the benefit of God, God's self. If God is an emergent God that is in some way dependent on our relationship, um, then um, we act in, in ways that are good, not only for our own sake and for the sake of others around us, but for the sake of God as well. 